It's good to see all your faces this morning. I hope you all had a, a great week. I know uh, getting prepared for Christmas Day, for us, at least us men, can be really challenging, especially with us who have a large family, right? So, yes, it's been a very busy week for me. I would like to note real quick, not to look for any kind of sympathy from anybody, but I've been struggling with a very severe head cold all week. So I wrote this sermon through sick eyes. Um, but anyway, um, to God be all the glory, right? We're all here. We're all in one piece. We're still alive. And we have a lot to be thankful for, and we have a lot to be celebrating. And that is something we should be celebrating every day and every moment of our lives. But it's nice just to kind of slow down uh, with family and, and friends and young ones and just enjoy uh, the holiday season. So turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I'll be starting in verse 8, and I'll be reading to verse 20. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 20, and it reads, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they had made known, they had made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Uh, the particular verse that I'll be focusing on this morning is verse 17, which reads, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, we are so grateful to be able to be here this morning. We're grateful, Lord, that you've allowed us to congregate and come together, Lord, that we may see Christ high and lifted up. Lord, that our number one motivation today would be to worship the living God. Lord, I thank you today that you would remove any kind of 
boundary, any kind of obstacle from our thinking this morning. Help us to hear, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart that's not distracted this morning, Lord, that will be totally and completely and devoted to you. Let us hear your word, Lord. Speak to us today. And Lord, please help me, Lord, by your governing grace and your power and your kingship. Give me the ability and enablement to proclaim your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we gather together uh, over the holiday, I really meant for this all just to be a short sermonette. As that when I started this whole um, message, but it grew a little bit since then. But I'd like to remind you of three things this morning. They're this: Christ concealed. Number one, that He was concealed for a time. Number two, Christ revealed. And number three, Christ taken to the field. It's Christ concealed, Christ revealed, and Christ taken to the field. Let's look at our first point this morning, Christ concealed. Now remember, there is a concealing factor here. There's a concealing factor when we talk about whether you are of God or whether you are still lost and of Satan. We could be concealed. It could be concealed to us as 2 Corinthians 4.3 says. It says, but if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are what? Lost. Or we can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4, where it says, Who minds, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should be seen to them. We could be like the doubting Thomas, who is of Christ, who is a follower of Christ, who is a disciple of Christ, who says that Jesus said to him, blessed are they that have not seen, have not seen, but yet what? They still believe. And that could be you this morning as well. In verse 8, as we're reading in our text, it says, now there was in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now these shepherds were living out in the fields. Get that in your mind, right? You, have you ever lived out in the field before? Okay, these men lived out in the field. They weren't living in palaces. They were keeping watch as what? Good shepherds do. But notice, they were third shift. They're at the night watches. If it wasn't bad enough living out in the field, okay, but they're staying up all night as well. You can imagine that. And just think about this. What is the difference from a night watch opposed to day watching? What kind of varmints would you say? What kind of animals and predators come around at night that you'd never see during the day. So you could see, number one, they're living out in the field. It's at night. They're third shift out there. And they're probably protecting the flock from wolves, bears, lions, and who knows what else was roaming around there in the darkness. You could see what type of people these shepherds were. 
Tradition says <clears throat> that they were actually natives of the little village called Beth Zur that we read about in Joshua 1558 and Nehemiah 3.16. They were feeding their flocks apparently in the same fields from which David had been summoned to feed Jacob, God's people, and Israel, his inheritance. Could they be as Jesus declares in the book of John where he says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you have come into their labor. We don't know for sure, but we do know that there was a declaration out of nowhere coming to them opposed to the scribes and the doctors and all of the high and mighties. He came to the lowly. Unknowingly, they were the first recipients of the New Testament to hear the gospel and see Christ for the first time publicly. Not privately, because we know about Mary, right? We know that she had an encounter. But what we're saying here is this is the first time we read that this message was received publicly. I like what Luke 2.17 says. It says, now when they had seen him, and I really want you to get this into your heart this morning, okay? It's about what happens to those of us who biblically and only have seen Christ. What happens to the individual? What happens to the person with our encounter with Christ? What was your life like at that very moment when you came in contact with Christ for the first time? When you had the Isaiah 6 moment where you saw Christ high and lifted up? You looked at him with your eyes spiritually. Would you look at Isaiah? What happened to Isaiah? He didn't stand like, like an almighty one. He didn't jump up and down and dance around. The Bible says he became undone, literally demolished, unhinged, crushed to powder. But it was only then and there was he ever ready to take the good news of the gospel to the world. His ministry would have never started, at least on the right foot, if he started any other way. If reaching every one of us, when we come to Christ, it's that moment when we see Christ in truth that causes us to unravel as well. And we see the angel take the coal across his mouth and he was prepared to go out and to preach the word. This is how the Lord had prepared his servant, but we do know that just prior in verse 9, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Or another version says, The Lord came upon them. And the glory, listen to this now, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Who? Those who had saw the angels come. They seen the glory as it, it, it enveloped them. And they were what? Greatly afraid. Who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't you? Could you imagine just out there doing your work? I mean, you can imagine how many months or how many years this work has probably gone on, right? And they probably didn't see anything except bears and lions and wolves, right? And then shattering suddenly out of nowhere, you see this angelic host in the sky bringing the good news. It would have startled me as well. I probably would have fell over dead. But they heard the words because the angel told them, Do not be afraid. For behold, 
I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And then verse 13 says, And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth goodwill toward men. Yeah, we see a pattern here. But remember, these are <clears throat> angels. These aren't men. But let this be a sign to us. The angels could not contain their joy after delivering the message of Christ. The elevated worship. I'm going to tell you something. There is no higher pitch of worship that a human being could get to than the declaration of Jesus Christ coming out of their mouth. The proclamation of Christ should make each and every one of us this morning just burst forth with joy and gratitude and hope and enthusiasm to go out into the world. Not only what has just been accomplished through Christ on your behalf, but the reality is it should so move us that this bursting forth of love for what God has done for us, to hear this message that we're no longer condemned, we're no longer under the wrath of God, we're not going to go into Satan's jaws for all eternity. We have been set free. We've been made new. And we are fit and prepared for all eternity. I mean, what does it make you feel like? Is it okay to feel? I know it's a Reformed church, but we can have feelings, right? It's that feeling of just utter, overwhelmingly shattering, explosive love for Christ that should just burst out of every molecule of our being. Of course, we don't live like this every day, every moment. Of course not. find myself on the other side of the tracks quite often asking God for mercy and grace to bring me back to where I can have the exhilaration of him again. Many of us today, this morning, may have lost our way, may have drifted, right? It may be a doubting Thomas in here today. But just remember this, today is the day. Listen, the beautiful thing about the beauties of God's grace and that we can come to the throne of grace unhindered because of the boldness that Christ had in our place, we can approach, we can approach the throne of grace, not with cowering, shivering fear, but with boldness. Why? Because Christ came in for us. We should be bursting forth in praise today. And it's okay to shout in this church. You're not limited. You can shout and holler all you want. They couldn't contain it. Neither should we. In another instance, we read in Matthew one twenty another angelic uh, visitation where the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Once again, <clears throat> not be afraid to take to you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of 
the Holy Spirit. And 21 says, And she will bring forth a son, and she shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's a beautiful thing to hear, isn't it? I never get tired of that, ever. <clears throat> and then we see uh, we're in Matthew one twenty three. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they, who is they? Us, shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Let me say that again. God with us, not God with them. How many times do you find yourself saying that at times? I think that at times. Sure, God's with them, but God, are you with me? Certainly I know you're with her, but what about me, Lord? The Bible says that God, Emmanuel means God with us. With us. He's on our side. He's for us. This is the God we serve. This is the God who saved us. This is the God who gave up his son. The most precious thing you could ever give up is Christ. Imagine that. His son was crushed. He took upon himself the full wrath of God in our place. He satisfied the righteous demands of the law that were against us. He not only just died for us, he lived for us in our place as well. Think of that for a moment. Let that press in. And then you're like, God is with me. God is with me. Don't trust your feelings at this point. Trust in the word of God. Trust in the word of God. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I like what John Chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh, and it dwelt among, once again, who? Us. 1 John 1, 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have, what? Heard, which we have, what? Seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. You see, the Lord descended down upon us because there's no way that man can ascend unto God. All religions so desperately, first of all, all religions were created based on one thing, what to do with sin. And you notice all the religions, if I could say that, other than Christianity, all have a way and by which you can get to a certain state or you can climb to heaven on your good works. It's really more of a works righteousness in every single one of them. They're all, when you get down to the wiring of them all, they're all exactly the same. They think they can be saved by what they do. Because why? You can't erase sin. You have a conscience. Romans, what was it, 2, uh, 17 and 18 talks about 2, 14 or 15, I don't remember. But it talks about the conscience. Every man has a conscience. Every man is either freed from the blood of Christ or he remains condemned. I remember I had a man on the street was arguing with me one time 
uh, I don't remember exactly what religion he professed to be, or well, was just going after me. And he says, how do you know that hell exists? I said, because you have a conscience and you know you have violated the character of God. And you know that the justice of God may not meet you here, but it will meet you there. As Charles Spurgeon said, the voice of the conscience says, the wrath to come, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And that is true. And he knew it. And it shut his mouth and he walked away. Hopefully he went to the Lord. But this is the faulty argument of the unbelieving world that somehow wants to try to disprove God or it's actually there's no way because the harder they try to disprove God, the more they fall in alignment that God exists. It's self-refuting. John 3.31, Jesus said, He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Second Corinthians 5.19 says this, that is that Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, that has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God became a man, not an angel, okay? The Bible says in Hebrews 2.16 says, For verily he being Christ took not on him the nature of an angel, but was completely and fully God. The baby announced was God incarnate. And notice these angels did not come to the high and mighties. They went to the lowly. They were sent specifically by our Lord to the shepherd's field. This surprising angelic visitation suddenly seen by some of the shepherds living out in the fields who are keeping the flock at night. We don't really know why God does exactly what he does and why he doesn't. We don't have to. But it seems to me that God reaches out to the lowly, never those who are prideful. So it seems that the Lord, for whatever reason, is going to some humble, lowly, shepherds to bring these glad tidings. Because the Bible said God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we've got to remember, these were not thunder, this wasn't thunder and fire from the mountains of Sinai, but instead the glad tidings of the gospel. Randy Alcorn writes, he said, in Christ's day, if you want to get a good picture, you can kind of get an idea of what the reputation of the shepherd really was. He writes in Christ's day, shepherds stood on the bottom rung of Israel's social ladder. They shared the same status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. During the time of the patriarch, shepherds, shepherding was a noble occupation. Shepherds are mentioned early in Genesis 4.20 when the 12 tribes of Israel migrated to Egypt. They encountered a lifestyle foreign to them. Joseph matter-of-factly informed his brothers, every shepherd is detestable to the Egyptians because Egyptians considered sheep worthless for food and for sacrifice. In the course of 400 years, the Egyptians prejudiced the Israelites' attitude toward shepherding. When Israel later settled in Canaan, 
1400 BC, the few tribes still remain, retaining a fondness for pastoral life chose to live in the Transjordan. After settling in Israel, shepherding ceased to hold its prominent position. As the Israelites acquired more farmland, pastoring decreased. Shepherding became a menial vocation for the laboring class. Around 1000 BC, David's emergent as king temporarily raised the shepherd's image. The lowliness of this trade made David's promotion really even more striking than it already was. In the days of the prophets, sheep herders symbolized judgment and social desolation. Amos contrasted his high calling as prophet with the former role as a shepherd. Dr. Joachim Jeremiah says that shepherds were, were despised in everyday life. In general, they were considered second class and they were considered untrustworthy. Shepherding had not just lost its widespread appeal, it eventually forfeited its social acceptability. Some shepherds earned their poor reputations, but others became victims of a cruel, cruel stereotype. The religious leaders maligned the shepherd's good name. Rabbis banned pastoring sheep and goats in Israel, except on the desert plains. The Mishnah, Judaism's written record of the oral law, also reflects this prejudice, referring to shepherds in belittling terms. One passage describes them as incompetent. Another says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. Jeremiah documents the fact that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights. They could not fulfill judicial offices or be admitted in court as witnesses. He wrote, to buy wool, milk, or a kid from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. In Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus, Jeremiah notes, the rabbis asked with amazement how, in the view of the despicable nature of shepherds, how can one explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23, verse 1. Smug religious leaders maintain a strict caste system at the expense of shepherds and other common folk. Shepherds were officially labeled sinners, a technical term for a class of what? Despised people. Into this social context of religious snobbery and class prejudice, God's son stepped forth. How surprising and significant that Father God handpicked lowly, unpretentious shepherds to first hear this joyous news. Even from birth, Christ moved among the lowly. It was the sinners, not the self-righteous, that he came to save. The proud religionists of Christ's day have faded into obscurity, but the shepherd figure is one again elevated in church life as pastors, shepherds of their flocks. That figure was immortalized by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ is also the great shepherd in Hebrews 13.20 and the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5.4. No other illustration so vividly portrays his tender care in his guiding hand. As we gaze on 
the nativity scenes and smile at those gunny sack shepherds, let's not lose sight of the striking irony. A handful of shepherds marginalized by the social and religious elite were chosen to break the silence of centuries heralding Messiah's birth. So now you got a good picture of what these men, how they were seen in, by, by others, especially other Israelites. They were literally reduced almost to a leper's status. Think about that. How many times have we, brothers and sisters, and I'd like to ask you this question this morning, I'd like to think clearly about this. How many times have we prejudged a person or family by the way that they looked or their social class? Be honest this morning. You know, as we approach Christmas here around the eve of Christmas Day, let us take a moment and ask ourselves, you know, we can look at this and how prejudiced that the world was to the shepherds, but how is it with us? Do we take ourselves as being the spiritual elite? A higher class citizen than everybody else? Do we find ourselves at times talking about other people, gossiping, slandering, criticizing, even me in your heart as I speak? What is that? You know what I mean? It's in all of us. I know I've prejudged people before. I've said things before that I shouldn't have said, wishing I never said it. But it's here, it really gives me an understanding of God's heart. God's heart. And the Lord is for the humble. Not the false humility stuff either. But the true humility of others moves the heart of God. I like what um, author and pastor Ryan Denton writes. He says this, Too often, the reformed man acts as the Pharisee who stood off by himself and treated others with contempt. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, Arminians, continuists, street preachers, or even like the man who shouts amen in the middle of the service. I read Calvin twice a week. I don't talk to immature Christians, and I never get too emotional when praying or preaching. I reject all talk of revivals and miracles. You see, Christmas, brothers and sisters, it isn't about Santa, Rudolph, elves, and getting a bunch of presents. It's a beautiful thing to celebrate Christmas, to have the tree, to have the presents, to be with the family. We know that Romans 14.5 gives us the liberty to worship Christ at any day that we see fit. I can bring a tree into my house that God created whenever I want and put it up. I'm not bowing down to it. I'm not worshiping it. I'm not tugging on it and talking to it. But I have every right to worship my Lord however I see fit, as long as I'm not in sin or putting anything above him. Let each one be convinced in his own conscience, Romans says. Also, Colossians bothly says, don't let other people judge you when you decide to celebrate a holiday, as long as it is Christ himself that we are worshiping and not anything else. I think anyone here is worshiping their trees, right? Come on. If that's the case, we do need to talk. But I would say this too. 
As we're down this road of thinking right now, how God uses the humble, the ones that are the most least likely to get picked, right? God always picks that guy that no one ever thinks in a million years he's ever going to get picked. How many times you see people doing things in ministry and you hear about their past, what they came out of. I was homeless. I was on drugs or whatever it may be. I may be a long-standing atheist or whatever it may be. And they come out of that into Christ's marvelous light. And God uses them in ways that are so profound and prolific. Sometimes in your heart, you're going, how come I'm not there? Why don't I get to do all those things? You know, we start getting jealous and envious, but God has his way where he bypasses around the self-righteous and those that don't think they need anything, that they're perfectly fine, they're perfectly good. We don't need Christ. We got it together, which is a total lie from the pit of hell because we all need Christ. Christ was concealed, and now he is revealed, and God uses the most unlikely individuals. We see from Noah to Moses to the farmer like Amos to Jephthah, and we see a harlot like Rahab, a little child like Samuel, Peter who rejected Christ three times. We see doubting Thomas, Paul, and many more. And we see the shepherds. But this is all comparable as well, how God had brought Christ in, how Christ came, right? As a baby, quietly, not loud and bouncing around. Well, maybe Mary was loud and bouncing around as she's bouncing on that donkey. But the reality is, is that, you know what? Christ came in secretly when he came in. He didn't come in in a way that was obnoxious. It's a beautiful thing to see. We also see that in a latter ministry of John the Baptist, who was chosen by Christ as a man basically in rags, whose diet was that of bugs and honey to usher in Christ upon the scene of his earthly ministry. Just think about that for a moment. The message of these angelic visit visitors came to these humble, lowly shepherds out in the middle of a field. God used that way that would probably offend the religionists of the day. How offensive that God would come to me when I'm doing everything correct. But yet God goes to them. In a similar fashion, God raised up John the Baptist, the most least likely to be raised, to do what? To usher in Christ, to usher in Christ's ministry. Think about that for just a moment. John the Baptist, a man in rags, a man who eats bugs, a man who is an outcast. And this is what, you're telling me the way this guy looks, you're going to use him, him, to usher in Christ? Give me a break. Well, that's exactly what God did do. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man dressed in fine clothes? You find those in the palaces, but certainly not out here. Well, then why did God use you? Well, for God's own sovereign reason. But God is showing us something very clearly in this message this morning. That God chooses the most unlikely to use for his glory. 
John was also the greatest and that God had chosen him to break the 430 years of divine silence that had existed since the prophet Malachi. Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was more than a prophet because John himself was even the subject of prophecy. Both Malachi and Isaiah had prophesied about John the Baptist coming and as a forerunner to the arrival of the Messiah. I always love looking at these illustrations because it reminds me, brothers and sisters, God uses the most beat up individuals that seem most dysfunctional to the world and even to the church today to bring about his work upon this earth. In John 1.28, it says the next day, speaking of John the Baptist, he saw Christ. We talk about this seeing Christ and the impact it has on us in our response to seeing him. John's response was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Paul addresses this as well. He says, For brethren, you, you see your calling, how, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty things. And the vile things of the world. Hear me again. The vile. God chooses the vile things of the world. And the things which are what? Despised. Hath God chosen, this is what God chose, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should rejoice in his presence. True humility doesn't dance around and want to be a show-off and want to be seen by everybody. And is so hungry for self-promotion that it completely misses it altogether. Which brings us on to our next point. Obviously, we're not going to finish up this today, but I'll do my best to pull out the nuggets of what's left. Which is, you know, I, you know, in Mark 12, 37, which is always a, a point that I always want to address, it says that the common people had heard Christ gladly. The common people, which is translated into basically humble, lowly people. I like what Barnes says about this before we move on to the next point. He says the success of the Savior in his preaching was chiefly among the common or the poorer class of people. The rich and the mighty were too proud to listen to his instructions. So it still is. Perhaps the famous preacher John Newton explained it best when he said this, When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many people there whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many people whom I did expect to see. And the third and the greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. Yes, it is truly wonderful, isn't it? To think that God would choose us to be his own. 
Christ revealed. Verse 15, it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing. I never really liked when I said, see this thing. It always bothered me when he says that, but to see this thing. It's Christ. It's the baby that has come to pass, which the Lord has, look at, the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. In Matthew 1, 18-23, it's really talking about Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. As Isaiah 9, 6 said that Jesus Christ will come as a baby. Jesus is described by several names following. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah prophesied that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. With Matthew chapter 2, 4 and 6, as the scribes knew that Bethlehem was the promised birthplace of the Messiah. Matthew 4.16 illustrates just this, this situation with the darkness being shattered with light. As we read in Matthew 4.16, it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen, what? A great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. In Galatians 3.23, it says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Romans 1.18 talks about what is actually revealed to the lost and the ungodly. The only thing that is revealed to them is the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And for the righteous, we read in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is what? Revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Even, you know, even, even though in 1 Corinthians 13.12 it says, for now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. What a wonderful day that's going to be when we finally get there. And, this, and, and, and we're all there rejoicing before the feet of Christ before all eternity. Third point, Christ taken to the field. Christ taken to the field. Christ was concealed, Christ was revealed, and now when he is revealed, when he is seen, by all those who have seen him, they can't but help speak of what they saw. They were compelled. As even Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Even Jeremiah, there's a fire in my bones, I can't contain it. It's this reality once again, once they saw, once they heard the message, once they seen Christ, even as a baby, what did they do? They took the message to others. Beautiful. And when they heard and seen, they made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And 18 says, and all those, listen, all of those who heard it marveled. Another translation says, or wondered, 
or astonished or amazed at those things were told to them by the shepherds. Isn't that fantastic? Think about that. They're declaring what they just heard and what they saw. And they went out and they told others. And people weren't like, you know, getting mad at them. And it does happen, obviously. But they were amazed at what they heard. They're blown away by this news. It's a beautiful thing. They heard the angel's message and they seen the Christ child and they couldn't but help as the angels, they burst out telling others about the Lord. They were preaching and God's people will hear. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. And in 19, it says, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that what they heard and seen and was told to them. Whether you decide to celebrate Christmas or not, it's really irrelevant. The relevant thing is, is that we must understand who Christ is, why he came, how he came, taking these things, meditating upon these things, and in a glorious shout, reaching out to others. Matthew one twenty one. he shall bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the gospel. Jesus said the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Remember this this morning. There's a couple things you can take with you as we close. Remember, Christ has been revealed to you, and he's no longer concealed. Go out and tell everybody about him, and just utter joy and power. Speak his name. Do not be ashamed of his name. Do not compromise. Do not accommodate the world's thinking into your program of Christianity, the life of Christ, knowing Christ, being of Christ, being born again, given a new heart and a new spirit, new affections, new desires, a new mind, a transformed mind. You confront the world with fearlessness. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world. And we can rejoice in that. Let that be your fuel, brothers and sisters. Let us go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. But most importantly, Lord, we're just so thankful for your son. Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, we're thankful for the shepherds. We're thankful, Lord God, that they were there. We're thankful, Lord God, that they give us a good testimony of what it means and shows what happens to an individual when they hear the message and they see Christ high and lifted up and they go out into the world with this message, Lord. Make us this way, Lord. If we're not this way, make us this way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.